here we are again with Night Studio, a memoir of Philip Guston. We are on chapter two. Women are learners. And there's a drawing of the uh, drawing for the painting called Bombardment that he did in 1936. So that's on the front front page here. Women are learners. My parents were married on February 4th, 1937. Remember, this is by Philip Guston's daughter. She's the one that's the narrator speaking. My parents were married on February 4th, 1937, a year after they moved to New York. The only witness to the perfunctory city, city hall ceremony was Jackson Pollock's brother, Sandy McCoy. <laughs> Interesting. Immediately after the wedding, my, brother, my mother recalls the happy couple went off not for some romantic interlude, but to look at a subway station with some of the other painters in the WPA mural division. Wouldn't it be great if we could get that wall for a mural, Philip said? Later, he did some studies for the Penn Station subways, but the project was never completed. By the late 1930s, half the artists in the United States were living in New York City. After the collapse of the art market in the early years of the Depression, the government subsidies of the WPA provided a lively milieu, a sense of artistic community, as well as a meal ticket. We'd work like hell, painter James Brooks remembers. All day we'd work on cartoons, full-scale drawings, or murals, and at night we worked from a model. They attended meetings at the Artists' Union, but steered clear of the incessant political bickering between the Stalinists and the Trotskyites, and between the Marxist theorists and art-for-art's-sake advocates. Often, they'd go out to the movies or to the Federal Theater, another important gathering place. My father retained, and my father retained vivid memories of the ILGWU's famous musical, Pins and Needles, Orson Welles' Dr. Faustus, performed in street clothes, and especially Mark Blizzard. Blitzstein's The Cradle Will Rock, an unorthodox and controversial opera about a steel strike. At At the first American Artists' Congress in 1936, Lewis Mumford and others spoke of the impending war, the rise of fascism and racism, and the tenuous position of government programs in support of the arts. Government programs to subsidize the arts had been under constant attack from the right, the Hearst Press referring to artists on the project as hobohemian chiselers and ingrates. By 1936, more than 6,000 artists were employed by the WPA and by 1939, over a million works of art had been placed in public institutions in more than 40 states. When the Spanish Civil War broke out, my father painted 
bombardments. Sorry, bombardment. A tondo, round painting, showing the horrors of the fascist air raids against civilians. It's on plate 14 in the book. When the painting was exhibited in New York at the First Whitney Museum Annual in 1938, Philip rolled it all the way from his studio on 22nd Street to the museum on 8th Street. Look magazine gave Bombardment a full page, reproducing it in a lurid orangey-brown. At the center of the painting, the violent, the violent concussion of a bomb explodes a group of highly foreshortened, brilliantly colored figures toward the, toward the viewer. A mother clasps her screaming child. One man is knocked to the ground, while other catapults through the air with the force of the explosion. An ominous red-cloaked figure wearing a gas mask seems to fly out of the painting. Arrayed information across the bilious sky, bilious sky above are line after line of bombers. It is a powerful work, perhaps the most overtly political of all my father's easel paintings, but it must have seemed terribly conventional to him in 1939 when he saw Picasso's depiction of Guernica, the first Spanish town to be devastated by, by saturation bombing. During these years, my mother continued to paint as well, competing for several mural commissions. While fi with Philip, she worked on panels for the Maritime Commission to be installed in the SS Hayes, Jackson, and Monroe, three steamships later converted to troop ships during the war. In 1939, she completed a mural for the post office at, in Waverly, New York. And in 1941, my parents worked on two companion pieces for the Department of Forestry in Laconia, New, New Hampshire. From photographs she keeps hidden away, I can see that my mother's painting, too, had developed in the years since Otis Art Institute. There's a stillness in her painting, a sense of balance and order. People and animals and landscapes are expertly and lovingly rendered. But I look in vain among the newspaper clippings, the magazine articles, for anything that mentions her work. When I ask my mother about this, she acts as if I'm questioning the obvious. But Philip's murals were wonderful, she says. Mine were nothing. Immediately, I raise objections. How can she summarily dismiss her gifts as a painter? It seems so unfounded, so harsh. But there's no arguing with her. She is adamant. We go on to talk of other things, but her self-effacement continues to trouble, trouble me. I have to remind myself that my mother has made her choices and is at peace with them. It is I who am still struggling to resolve what can't be resolved. To be her, or to be my father, my two models miles apart, and always this dumb need to... 
and always this dumb need to choose to be the artist's wife or the artist. I f- finally, I insist on a drive to Waverly, a small town not far from far from Binghamton, Binghamton, New York. Though we traveled to Europe and across the United States several times to see my father's paintings, this is the first time I have thought to bring my mother here. In the, po- in the Waverly Post Office, over the postmaster's office door and the bulletin boards with their wanted posters <laughs> is a mural depicting the early settlers and Indians in the area in plate 13. The name in the lower right is Musa McKim. The date is 1939. My mother's mural was one of 68 commissioned in New York State by the Section of Fine Arts. The Pioneer family grouping on the right, my mother explains, is a portrait of her own family. I recognize the features of my grandfather, Frederick McKim, in the father, sawing a board for the siding of his house. At the lower right, facing her father, a self-portrait of a demure girl seated in a white cap and dress, her eyes modestly averted. The ball of wool in her hand attracts the attention of a cat, whose tail is slyly curling around a clump of wildflowers. Behind the trunk, behind the trunk, oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't know, I think my eyes wanted to put the two words together here that I'm going to read next. <laughs> behind the butter churn. <laughs> I'm sorry. Do I have Trump on the mind? Oh, gosh. Behind the butter churn and the family cow stands the almost featureless mother, a portrait of my grandmother, Musa Hunter McKim, the first Musa. She is a tall, hefty woman with strong shoulders and a short waist, a physique that has skipped a generation and is recognizably my own. Turned half away, partitioned from her husband and daughter by the placid cow, she hardly seems part of the family grouping. My mother's sister, Josephine, makes no appearance at all, unless it is symbolically as the spirited black horse their mother struggles to control. I walk around the post office, admiring the mural, taking pictures, The postmaster, excited to have the artist there in the flesh, is trying unsuccessfully, it's Saturday morning, to reach a photographer from the local newspaper. My mother seems distinctly uncomfortable. Later she tells me she doesn't really like the painting. Reluctant to come in the first place, she thinks we are silly for making such a fuss. Wow, that's interesting. You know, it's interesting is my mother was born in 39 and she she has the same middle name as her mother has first name and my mother has given me the same middle name so actually no it's 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 my grandmother and her and I all have the same middle name Teresa so I wonder if that was sort of a um, tradition in the times, you know. I'm going to stop here.
and continue on the next segment. Despite the growing recognition his murals received in the late 1930s, my father was beginning to have misgivings about his own direction, doubts over what his biographer Dora Ashton termed the increasingly the increasingly tendentious tone in contemporary American art. One caustic jibe of the thirty of the late thirties, attributed to Arshal Arshal Gorky described the painting, another guy I really like, Arshal Gorky described the painting of the times as quote-unquote poor art for poor people. (laughs) But if social realism was so long but if social realism was no longer viable for my father excuse me a return to the Italian masters was equally problematic. At 25, he began questioning his commitment to the Renaissance vision. Philip discussed his own dilemma in modern art in general with Burgoyne Diller, his supervisor on the Federal Arts Project. Well, the older artist would say, you're good in the ancient manner. Diller, as well as other painters on the project, Willem de Kooning, Arshal Gorky, Stuart Davis, to name a few, was deeply influenced by European abstraction. Alfred Barr's Cubism, an abstract art exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in 1936, had a profound impact on young painters. Picasso, Mondrian, and Miro were much discussed. Yet art historian Meyer Shapiro foremost among those trying to reconcile Marxism and modernism at the time, and much respected as an art historian by my father, rejected the notion of a purely abstract art, finding little justification for the absolute painting divested of content. And there's quotations all around that. (laughs) It's, quote, finding little justification for the, quote, unquote, absolute painting divested of quote-unquote content, end quote. (laughs) It was a difficult and crucial time for American artists. Social realism was dead or dying, and a legitimate naive form of abstraction had yet to take hold. I'm going to pause right here. I'll never forget when I was in art school. They were talking then still, and they have talked about it yet, and before, about how painting is always dead. (laughs) Uh, Keep painting. Keep painting, everybody. War was imminent, and the left was collapsing. The social crisis was to have no closing date and had to be accepted as the condition of the era, wrote critic Harold Rosenberg. Thus, art consisted only of the will to paint and the memory of paintings and society so far as art was concerned consisted of the man who stood in front of the canvas (laughs) 
that's what Rosenberg was saying. It is a resolution that seems, from our vantage point, quite inevitable. But Rosenberg's analysis, which points to the beginnings of abstract expressionism as an existential response to the turmoil of the late 1930s, was undertaken many years later and from a secure position of retrospective wisdom. At the time, such a stance would probably have seemed suspect. Jackson Pollock was now involved with Mexican muralist Sequeiros' experimental workshop on Union Square, a laboratory of political and cultural ferment, where Pollock and others were investigating the spontaneous use of materials, quote-unquote, controlled accidents, with the newest synthetic paints, spray guns, and airbrushes. This, uh, this spontaneity was the obvious precursor to Pollock's famous drip paintings of the early 50s. Philip used to watch Stuart Davis at work through a crack in the partition that separated their two studios. He would mount his scaffold, my father recalled, lavishly spread paint on large areas with a palette knife, step down and look at the results for a while in his suspenders smoking his cigar. Then he would mount his ladder again and scrape the whole thing off onto the floor. (laughs) I can relate to this. I remember how impressed I was by this lavish use of paint. I do, I waste a lot of paint and by his willingness to change in the process wait and by his willingness to change in the process while i in my bay still under the spell of the renaissance was laboriously working on my big cartoon <laughs> in 1939 my father received his first important mural commission an outdoor painting for the facade of the works progress administration building at the 1939 World's Fair. His subject was maintaining America's skills and the work that he did on the large concave surface was quite different from any of his previous murals. The four figures, mason, scientist, surveyor, laborer, were simplified, stylized, abstract. In part, this was due to the difficulties of working on a curved surface. Gone was the elaborate modeling, the sinuous line. Even his color scheme was reduced. In a clear, positive statement, the New York Times reviewer wrote, Gustin has given visual form to a strongly felt abstract idea. Visitors voted his painting the best outdoor mural among the more than 400 at the fair. In 1940, he completed work on a mural for the Queensbridge Housing Project in New York, from which 20 years later he attempted to have his name removed <laughs> after a sign painter had restored it. Work 
and play contained his first image of children playing, a mock street battle which, as Dora Ashton points out, was, a, was seminal for Augustine's future work. Also alert... Sorry, that's not how it says. Always alert for the communist menace government inspectors imagined they saw a hammer and a sickle in the curve of a dog's tail against a child's leg. My father was ordered off the scaffold until his background could be investigated. Oh my goodness. Hmm. Far-fetched as this story may seem now, there were apparently a number of other uh, other examples of an extreme anti-communist communist vigilance. Gee, sounds a little familiar. (laughs) One was related to me recently. One was related to me recently by my father's old friend James Brooks. During the McCarthy era, Brooks's mural flight on the on the rotunds of of the Marine Air Terminal at LaGuardia was painted over with gray enamel. The shadowed edge of the circular opening through which the shoulders and head of a Pro- Promethean figure protrude. Uh, wait, this doesn't sound right. Let me go back. And sometimes my eyeballs start to get goofy at night. Let's see here. Oh, this is better light. Okay. The shattered edge of of the circular opening through which the shoulders and head of a Promethean figure protrude protrude was... That doesn't sound right. The head of a Promethean figure protrude. (laughs) Maybe I'm not knowing what that word means. I think of protrude as protruding in through. It says through which the shoulders and head of a Promethean figure protrude. Oh, yeah. Was uh, there's no comma there? <laughs> Protrude was suspected of representing the communist symbol of the sickle. Only in recent years, Ugh. sorry, this is nuts. Only in recent years, as the mural and and the terminal itself, a wonderful Art Deco structure, finally been restored. After Crean's Bridge mural was completed, my father resigned from the project to move to the small artist colony of Woodstock, New York, and concentrate on easel painting. I was weary of mural painting, municipal art commissions, and officialdom altogether, he wrote later. I wanted to work independently on personal imagery. But to support himself, he continued to work on several commissions for the section of fine arts. Over the next two years, he finished murals for buildings in Georgia, in New Hampshire, for the President Lines, and for the Social Security Building in Washington, D.C. My father later referred to his time on the project as a training ground, not only for him, but for the oldest painters of his generation. Everybody was given an opportunity to prove himself, he said. The project kept me alive and working. It was my education. Hmm. I can imagine that. 
During that summer of 1941, Philip completed what he always spoke of as his first mature work, Martial Memory, a street scene of boys at play. With its uptilted, fragmented, and planar, planar space, or planar space, it's P-L-A-N-A-R space, its images of trash can lids and kettles and paper hats, the painting clearly prefigures work that was to come some 30 years later. Yeah, that, that, I've seen that painting, and that's also mentioned in his film called um, Gust in a Life. That's one of his well-known pieces. My parents moved to Iowa City that fall, where my father had been offered a position as artist-in-residence at the university. An old friend from Los Angeles, Fletcher Martin, was leaving the Iowa Art Department and had recommended him. After the partial retreat of Woodstock, Philip must have felt quite remote from the turmoil and controversy of the New York art world away from the days and nights of arguing politics and aesthetics. For they were all there in New York by then. Mark Rothko, de Kooning, Franz Klein, Pollock, and Barnett Newman, and all the others that loosely knit in contentious group of painters who were in the late 40s and 50s to become the New York School, the so-called abstract expressionists, or action painters. Great things were beginning. What the hell are you going out there for? Pollock raged at Philip one night at the Mineta Tavern. In fact, my father deliberately chose to seclude himself at a critical juncture in his work. He was to do this repeatedly during his career, particularly at those moments when external pressures were mounting and internal confusion was at its highest. Though he was often claimed, though he has, though he was often claimed by this or that movement in art, my father was never a joiner. No manifesto ever expressed his beliefs. He bristled at labels. Rebels seldom make good revolutionaries, Lillian Hellman wrote in An Unfinished Woman. Perhaps because organized action, even union with other people, is not possible for them. But he cared what his contemporaries thought, of course. He cared deeply. He was far from immune to their criticism. At an artist's party during the late 40s, Philip was attacked for his reactionary stance, his staunch refusal to go abstract. According to a friend who was there, he broke down in tears. Seclusion allowed him to work, to develop in his own way. Eventually, it became his only defense. It was in Iowa City a year and a half later that I was born. It has become my habit to look myself up in books on Philip Guston, as if to reassure myself that yes, I was part of my father's life. And sure enough, there I am, making my first and only appearance, not in the text, but in the catalog chronologies between the entries for 1942 and 44. 1943, birth of daughter, Musa Jane.
tonight I'm reading in a different spot. I'm finishing up, hopefully, chapter two. We'll see if I make it. So we just left off with 1943, birth of daughter Musa Jane. My father was 30 at the time, my mother 35. They had been married six years. Though my mother was heavily drugged and barely conscious, my father had wanted to be present at my birth. Hungry for images and experiences of all kinds, he told me once he'd simply wanted to see what a birth was, what a birth looked like. My mother still has his letter to her parents in Panama, which she retrieves from one of her many files. I turn the letter over in my hands and peer at it. Though the hand is recognizably my father's, the ink has faded to a pale, almost illegible sepia on the brittle, tissue-thin sheets. My mother tells me that wartime censorship is responsible for the small rectangular hole where a phrase describing the weather has been cut out. The little Musa with brown hair and green slate eyes arrived at 8.30 p.m. Monday night, January 18th. My father writes in his energetic scrawl, I am so happy it is a girl because I want a little replica of Musa. She weighed seven pounds and was the color of Indian red, Indian red mixed with white when she came, but, it is, but is nice and pink now. A little replica of Musa. That was what my father wanted, and that was precisely what I tried for so long and so unsuccessfully to become. It's an injunction made more powerful for having remained unspoken all these years. Strange that I should feel this giddy sense of confirmation reading it now. So I'm not crazy. I didn't make all this up to justify my own fears and weaknesses. My name, like my mother's, is Musa Jane, but to my parents and their friends, I'm Ingi, I-N-G-I-E. I have never liked my nickname, which apparently derived from my babblings as a baby. Names were always a sore point with me. All during my childhood, I secretly envied the, the special and universal names other children called their parents. I never called my parents mom and dad, or mommy and daddy, or even mother and father. I called them Musa and Philip, like everyone else. I've always called my parents by their given names. They wanted it that way. Sweet and bitter, like so many aspects of my childhood. This was as much a recognition of me as an individual as it was a painful denial of who we were to one another. The University of Iowa Museum of Art owns a portrait entitled Young Mother that my father painted in 1944 of my mother with me on her lap. I am standing half naked, clad only in a shirt and cap, my outstretched hands loosely held by my mother, a ring of wooden spools and beads around one ankle a blue stuffed cat on a table, on a small table to one side. My father's, excuse me, my mother's face is strangely remote, ethereal. A certain tenderness is clear in the rendering of her features. 
but the painting also betrays the cool detachment of a Bellini Madonna. It wasn't until I was 23 and pregnant with my second child that my wife confided the other circumstances surrounding my birth. My oldest son, David, had just, tur- had just turned two when I called my mother from New York to tell her I was pregnant again. Oh dear, she said, sounding worried. Well, don't tell Philip. Whatever you do, let, it, let me break it to him. He was afraid, my mother told me, when I saw her a month or two later in Woodstock that with, with two babies living in the near poverty that accompanied my husband's teaching job, I'd be unable to do anything with my life. What do you mean, I protested. Isn't raising children doing something? She only shrugged and smiled. How did Philip feel about you having me, I asked. My mother paused for what seemed like a long time before answering. He didn't want children, she finally said. His work, well, you know, it was everything. But you did, I persisted. Musa nodded. I suppose it was the war. All the men were leaving, and I was terrified of being left alone. At least I would have had... At least I would have had have that much of him, I thought. But Philip was terribly upset. He was simply beside himself, saying I had ruined his life. I thought I had done something quite dreadful. My mother stopped and looked at me as if suddenly concerned that what she was revealing might disturb me. Then went on hurriedly, no, oh, then went on hurriedly to say, "Of course, when you arrived, it was entirely different." once he saw you. My mother was right. I did feel my father's affection for me. But it wasn't that simple. Nothing ever was with him. Hmm. Talking with my parents' old friends now, I still hear echoes of his ambivalence. I hear, Oh, your father loved you dearly, and Philip was terribly proud of you. And I hear that one day during her pregnancy, my mother came home with some baby clothes. At the sight of them, my father felt nauseated, he told a friend. In a fit of disgust, he gathered up the baby clothes and threw them in the back of the closet. It was a simple equation. More time spent working to support his family meant less time in his studio. My very existence meant an abridgment of his freedom. And yet early photographs show me as a pup as a happy, curly-haired toddler in corduroy overalls playing in our big white frame house in Iowa City. My father looks on with the bemused delight of any new father for his daughter. His lovingly detailed portrait in pencil of me sleeping. Excuse me. When I was a baby still hangs over my brother's dresser. That's plate 20. Though I remember little those years spent in Iowa at Lee, at Lee, sorry. Though I remember little those years spent in Iowa and later in St. Louis, where my father was head of the painting department at Washington University, were apparently idyllic and untroubled for me. Without any question, it was my mother who made them so. It seems ironic, terribly unbalanced, in counter to my own feminist leanings.
that my father should have captured so much of my attention. Nevertheless, that's how it was, and still is, I suppose. He was the one I longed for. It was his approval that I craved. Like any child in, in like any child in my predicament, I became attached to the depriving parent. Sadly, in the economy of my emotions, my mother didn't count, or didn't seem to at the time. But it was clearly my mother who was with me during all the years of my childhood. She was so immediate. She was so immediate a loving presence from the beginning that she became largely invisible. In the act of embracing, the loved one disappears. Such devotion seems almost as almost to preclude nothing knowing. Oh, I have to stop here because I guess it's still recording. I don't know. My phone, I yeah, it is okay. I need to turn off the lock on the thing because otherwise it's goofy. Let me do that really quickly. Go to anchor. Let's see, how do I do that? Is it general? Yeah, I just changed this today, and I don't know why I did that. I didn't think about this. Well, it looks like it doesn't matter because it still records. Okay, it's good to know. <laughs> okay, back to the story here. My mother's keen sense of her own relative unimportance was also incorporated by me, swallowed without question, as an article of faith, as the obverse, perhaps, of my father's genius. I didn't have no... I didn't have too long... I didn't have to long for her. She was there, available as my father was never to be, eager to play, to teach, to feed, to read to me, or warm my clothes beside the wood stove, and to be delighted by some small thing I'd said or did. She possessed that rarest of qualities in a woman. She was a natural mother. But for my father, the responsibilities of wife and daughter only added to a growing sense of crisis. The radical young painter living a nomad's life as he worked on his mural projects yielded uneasily to the family man. Here he was, a high school dropout, a political activist from Los Angeles, invited to be a professor of art on the faculty of a Midwestern university that had been for years the center of a well-established school of regional painting. This was Grant Wood Country. The master himself had had left the faculty the year before. Small-town life must have seemed to my father as it did to me in 1969 when I moved with my first husband and young sons to a little town in Ohio, rather exotic and interesting. In some ways, it suited my father's mood perfectly. In removing himself physically, he'd left behind, for the time being at least, the ongoing dialectic with abstraction, the conflict between modernism and history and social responsibility. I would rather be a poet than a pamphleteer, he is quoted as saying in an issue of Art News published two months after my birth. My father's paintings of the early 40s, especially works like Sentimental Moment and Musa McKim, recall Camille Carreau's portraits of peasant women 
which he loved for their melancholy, solid beauty. The French painter's landscapes for which he's best known were of little interest to Philip, but I remember him once taking me to see Corot's portraits at the Metropolitan Museum when I was in high school. Philip's paintings of this period are saturated with the loneliness, if not the surreal quality, of Giorgio de Chirico. It's Chirico. In them, the masquerades of the the late Venetian painting with their staged theatrical blue lighting are given a melancholy turn on deserted streets of of city slums. In a letter to a friend, he wrote about the Midwest of the lonely empty squares, gothic city halls, armories, big clocks illuminated at night, railroad stations trains, soldiers moving around, the war years. One of his students, the painter Stephen Green, who posed for Sanctuary in 1944, remembers Philip as looking as if he had stepped out of a Piero painting. There they were, in what Green describes as a small, shabby-looking, tasteless, isolated Midwestern town, not at all the Athens of America that Life magazine had described. But my father impressed Green deeply. This was a man of stature by personality and by obvious desire to be a great painter. My father's contributions to the war effort took the form of commissioned murals on on celestial navigation and illustrations for naval air training published in Fortune magazine. His first one-man exhibition at Iowa in 1944 shows the two directions his work had taken during those years. The complex poetic and intensely private moments of his portraits and paintings of children and the more illustrative drawings and watercolors, clear remnants of his mural days, but informed by a new painterliness and sense of composition he learned from easel painting. 1945 brought many successes. In that year, he was given his first one-man exhibition in New York at Midtown Galleries, which was critically well-received. Only Jackson Pollock, who had come to be a nagging conscience, a nagging conscience figure for Philip, according to Stephen Green, did not like the show. After the opening, when they were celebrating at a restaurant, Pollock wandered in, ragingly drunk, and upbraided Philip for some form of aesthetic betrayal. That same year, my father won the Carnegie Prize for his painting, Sentimental Moment. There was little satisfaction for him in this. In fact, he destroyed much of his work during this period. In what remains, the space has become flat. In what remains, the space has become flat, frontal, and increasingly abstract. The allegorical themes of unmasking and torture compressed into flat, cage-like, claustrophobic spaces. Clear signs of the post-war revelations of the Holocaust are in these paintings. Images of stacked-up limbs that reappear in his work some 30 years later. Outwardly, there were there was every reason for Gustin to feel at ease in the world, writes Dora Ashton. He had, by the age of 34, won most of the major honors available 
to American artists of the time. He was deeply admired by students and colleagues, but Guston's sense of having completed a phase in his artistic life was profound enough to fill him with uneasiness. He was already mentally preparing for a struggle with himself that would end after two academic years in St. Louis in what Guston has at various times called a kind of breakdown. I entered a very painful period when I'd lost what I had and had nowhere to go, my father said later. I was in a state of gradual dismantling. I began to think, well, maybe I don't really possess anything at all, anything anyway, and maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I don't know what I think I know. (laughs) And two and three and four... At two and three and four, I knew about my father's torments chiefly through his absences, his moody preoccupation with his own concerns. There were no scenes of anguish, no lashings out, no frightening moments, or none that I can remember. Occasionally, unpredictably, like sun breaking through overcast, he would suddenly become aware of me, would sweep me up in his arms and play with me for a few minutes, or kiss kiss me affectionately. Being a good father was certainly the least of his concerns. At the same time, being a good daughter was well on its way to becoming the greatest of mine. In 1947, my father won a Guggenheim Fellowship and was able to leave Washington University and return to Woodstock. At first, we lived on the side of Overlook Mountain in Birdcliff, a former artist colony of houses and studios, complete with theater and unused dining hall. It had been established in 1902 by the utopian English philosopher Ralph Whitehead and his wife Emily Bird as a formal colony like Yadu, Yado, sorry, or McDowell, but had become by that time simply inexpensive rentals for artists in the area. Later, we moved down to the rival settlement on the Maverick Road, built by a dissenting group of artists who established a community of their own, with its own concert hall and theater, and built a primitive, ragtag collection of houses and studios some three miles distant in the valley. Over the years, we lived in several of these houses before my parents finally bought one and modernized it. At that time, there were... At that time, they were little more than the tar paper cabins faced with, faced with split pine logs. They boasted no plumbing or heating. On the Maverick, you, stroked your own, you stoked your own wood stove, pumped your own water, padded to the outhouse in the moonlight. Taking a shower meant remembering to fill a pail with water and set it out so the sun could warm it. Chapter 2. We'll see if I make it. So we just left off with 
1943, birth of daughter Musa Jane. My father was 30 at the time, my mother 35. They had been married six years. Though my mother was heavily drugged and barely conscious, my father had wanted to be present at my birth. Hungry for images and experiences of all kinds, he told me once he'd simply wanted to see what a birth was, what a birth looked like. My mother still has his letter to her parents in Panama, which she retrieves from one of her many files. I turn the letter over in my hands and peer at it. Though the hand is recognizably my father's, the ink has faded to a pale, almost illegible sepia on the brittle, tissue-thin sheets. My mother tells me that wartime censorship is responsible for the small rectangular hole where a phrase describing the weather has been cut out. The little Musa with brown hair and green slate eyes arrived at 8.30 p.m. Monday night, January 18th, my father writes in his energetic scrawl. I am so happy it is a girl because I want a little replica of Musa. She weighed seven pounds and was the color of Indian red, Indian red mixed with white when she came, but, it is, but is nice and pink now. A little replica of Musa. That was what my father wanted, and that was precisely what I tried for so long and so unsuccessfully to become. It's an injunction made more powerful for having remained unspoken all these years. Strange that I should feel this giddy sense of confirmation reading it now. So I'm not crazy. I didn't make all this up to justify my own fears and weaknesses. My name, like my mother's, is Musa Jane, but to my parents and their friends, I'm Ingi, I-N-G-I-E. I have never liked my nickname, which apparently derived from my babblings as a baby. Names were always a sore point with me. All during my childhood, I secretly envied the, the special and universal names other children called their parents. I never called my parents mom and dad, or mommy and daddy, or even mother and father. I called them Musa and Philip, like everyone else. I've always called my parents by their given names. They wanted it that way. Sweet and bitter, like so many aspects of my childhood. This was as much a recognition of me as an individual as it was a painful denial of who we were to one another. The University of Iowa Museum of Art owns a portrait entitled Young Mother that my father painted in 1944 of my mother with me on her lap. I am standing half naked, clad only in a shirt and cap, my outstretched hands loosely held by my mother, a ring of wooden spools and beads around one ankle a blue stuffed cat on a table on a small table to one side my father's excuse me my mother's face is strangely remote ethereal a certain tenderness is clear in the rendering of her features but the painting also betrays the cool detachment of a bellini madonna it wasn't until i was 23 and pregnant with my second child that my wife confided the other circumstances surrounding my birth. 
My oldest son, David, had just, tur- had just turned two when I called my mother from New York to tell her I was pregnant again. Oh, dear, she said, sounding worried. Well, don't tell Philip. Whatever you do, let, it, let me break it to him. He was afraid, my mother told me, when I saw her a month or two later in Woodstock that with, with two babies living in the near poverty that accompanied my husband's teaching job, I'd be unable to do anything with my life. What do you mean, I protested. Isn't raising children doing something? She only shrugged and smiled. How did Philip feel about you having me, I asked. My mother paused for what seemed like a long time before answering. He didn't want children, she finally said. His work, well, you know, it was everything. But you did, I persisted. Musa nodded. I suppose it was the war. All the men were leaving, and I was terrified of being left alone. At least I would have had... At least I would have had have that much of him, I thought. But Philip was terribly upset. He was simply beside himself, saying I had ruined his life. I thought I had done something quite dreadful. My mother stopped and looked at me as if suddenly concerned that what she was revealing might disturb me, then went on hurriedly, no, oh, then went on hurriedly to say, Of course, when you arrived, it was entirely different once he saw you. My mother was right. I did feel my father's affection for me. But it wasn't that simple. Nothing ever was with him. Hmm. Talking with my parents' old friends now, I still hear echoes of his ambivalence. I hear, Oh, your father loved you dearly, and Philip was terribly proud of you. And I hear that one day during her pregnancy, my mother came home with some baby clothes. At the sight of them, my father felt nauseated, he told a friend. In a fit of disgust, he gathered up the baby clothes and threw them in the back of the closet. It was a simple equation. More time spent working to support his family meant less time in his studio. My very existence meant an abridgment of his freedom. And yet early photographs show me as a pup as a happy, curly-haired toddler in corduroy overalls playing in our big white frame house in Iowa City. My father looks on with the bemused delight of any new father for his daughter. His lovingly detailed portrait in pencil of me sleeping. Excuse me. When I was a baby still hangs over my brother's dresser. That's plate 20. Though I remember little, those years spent in Iowa at least at least sorry. Though I remember little, those years spent in Iowa and later in St. Louis, where my father was head of the painting department at Washington University, were apparently idyllic and untroubled for me. Without any question, it was my mother who made them so. It seems ironic, terribly unbalanced, in counter to my own feminist leanings, that my father should have captured so much of my attention. Nevertheless, that's how it was, and still is, I suppose. He was the one I longed for. It was his approval that I craved. Like any child in 
Like any child in my predicament, I became attached to the depriving parent. Sadly, in the economy of my emotions, my mother didn't count, or didn't seem to at the time. But it was clearly my mother who was with me during all the years of my childhood. She was so immediate. She was so immediate a loving presence from the beginning that she became largely invisible. In the act of embracing, the loved one disappears. Such devotion seems almost as almost to preclude nothing, knowing. Oh, I have to stop here because well, I guess it's still recording. I don't know. My phone, I s- yeah, it is, okay. I need to turn off the lock on the thing because otherwise it's goofy. Let me do that really quickly. Go to anchor. Let's see, how do I do that? Is it general? Yeah, I just changed this today, and I don't know why I did that. I didn't think about this. Well, it looks like it doesn't matter because it still records. Okay, it's good to know. Okay, back to the story here. My mother's keen sense of her own relative unimportance was also incorporated by me, swallowed without question, as an article of faith, as the obverse, perhaps, of my father's genius. I didn't have no, I didn't have too long, I didn't have to long for her. She was there, available as my father was never to be eager to play, to teach, to feed, to read to me, or warm my clothes beside the wood stove, and to be delighted by some small thing I'd said or did. She possessed that rarest of qualities in a woman. She was a natural mother. But for my father, the responsibilities of wife and daughter only added to a growing sense of crisis. The radical young painter living a nomad's life as he worked on his mural projects yielded uneasily to the family man. Here he was, a high school dropout, a political activist from Los Angeles, invited to be a professor of art on the faculty of a Midwestern university that had been for years the center of a well-established school of regional painting. This was Grant Wood Country. The master himself had had left the faculty the year before. Small-town life must have seemed to my father as it did to me in 1969 when I moved with my first husband and young sons to a little town in Ohio, rather exotic and interesting. In some ways, it suited my father's mood perfectly. In removing himself physically, he'd left behind, for the time being at least, the ongoing dialectic with abstraction, the conflict between modernism and history and social responsibility. I would rather be a poet than a pamphleteer, he is quoted as saying in an issue of Art News published two months after my birth. My father's paintings of the early 40s, especially works like Sentimental Moment and Musa McKim, recall Camille Carole's portraits of peasant women, which he loved for their melancholy, solid beauty. The French painter's landscapes for which he's best known were of little interest to Philip. 
but I remember him once taking me to see Corot's portraits at the Metropolitan Museum when I was in high school. Philip's paintings of this period are saturated with the loneliness, if not the surreal quality, of Giorgio de Chircuro. It's a shiriko. In them, the masquerades of the the late Venetian painting with their staged theatrical blue lighting are given a melancholy turn on deserted streets of of city slums. In a letter to a friend, he wrote about the Midwest of the lonely empty squares, gothic city halls, armories, big clocks illuminated at night, railroad stations trains, soldiers moving around, the war years. One of his students, the painter Stephen Green, who posed for Sanctuary in 1944, remembers Philip as looking as if he had stepped out of a Piero painting. There they were, in what Green describes as a small, shabby-looking, tasteless, isolated Midwestern town, not at all the Athens of America that Life magazine had described. But my father impressed Green deeply. This was a man of stature by personality and by obvious desire to be a great painter. My father's contributions to the war effort took the form of commissioned murals on on celestial navigation and illustrations for naval air training published in Fortune magazine. His first one-man exhibition at Iowa in 1944 shows the two directions his work had taken during those years. The complex poetic and intensely private moments of his portraits and paintings of children and the more illustrative drawings and watercolors, clear remnants of his mural days, but informed by a new painterliness and sense of composition he learned from easel painting. 1945 brought many successes. In that year, he was given his first one-man exhibition in New York at Midtown Galleries, which was critically well-received. Only Jackson Pollock, who had come to be a nagging conscience, a nagging conscience figure for Philip, according to Stephen Green, did not like the show. After the opening, when they were celebrating at a restaurant, Pollock wandered in, ragingly drunk, and upbraided Philip for some form of aesthetic betrayal. That same year, my father won the Carnegie Prize for his painting, Sentimental Moment. There was little satisfaction for him in this. In fact, he destroyed much of his work during this period. In what remains, the space has become flat. In what remains, the space has become flat, frontal, and increasingly abstract. The allegorical themes of unmasking and torture compressed into flat, cage-like, claustrophobic spaces. Clear signs of the post-war revelations of the Holocaust are in these paintings. Images of stacked-up limbs that reappear in his work some 30 years later. Outwardly, there, were, there was every reason for Gustin to feel at ease in the world, writes Dora Ashton. He had, by the age of 34, won most of the major honors available to American artists of the time. He was deeply admired by students and colleagues, but Gustin's sense 
of having completed a phase in his artistic life was profound enough to fill him with uneasiness. He was already mentally preparing for a struggle with himself that would end after two academic years in St. Louis in what Gustin has at various times called a kind of breakdown. I entered a very painful period when I'd lost what I had and had nowhere to go, my father said later. I was in a state of gradual dismantling. I began to think, well, maybe I don't really possess anything at all anything anyway, and maybe I'm not as good as I thought I was. Maybe I don't know what I think I know. (laughs) And two and three and four, at two and three and four, I knew about my father's torments chiefly through his absences, his moody preoccupation with his own concerns. There were no scenes of anguish, no lashings out, no frightening moments or none that I can remember. Occasionally, unpredictably, like sun breaking through his overcast, he would suddenly become aware of me, would sweep me up in his arms and play with me for a few minutes, or kiss, kiss me affectionately. Being a good father was certainly the least of his concerns. At the same time, being a good daughter was well on its way to becoming the greatest of mine. In 1947, my father won a Guggenheim Fellowship and was able to leave Washington University and return to Woodstock. At first, we lived on the side of Overlook Mountain in Birdcliff, a former artist colony of houses and studios, complete with theater and unused dining hall. It had been established in 1902 by the utopian English philosopher Ralph Whitehead and his wife Emily Bird as a formal colony like Yadu, Yado, sorry, or McDowell, but had become by that time simply inexpensive rentals for artists in the area. Later, we moved down to the rival settlement on the Maverick Road, built by a dissenting group of artists who established a community of their own with its own concert hall and theater, and built a primitive, ragtag collection of houses and studios some three miles distant in the valley. Over the years, we lived in several of these houses before my parents finally bought one and modernized it. At that time, there were, at that time, they were little more than the tar paper cabins faced with Faced with split pine logs, they boasted no plumbing or heating. On the Maverick, you stroked your own, you stoked your own wood stove, pumped your own water, padded to the outhouse in the moonlight. Taking a shower meant remembering to fill a pail with water and set it out so the sun could warm it. My kindergarten teacher at Woodstock Public School, a Mrs. Quick, forbade freehand drawing. My mother, receiving my carefully traced Thanksgiving turkey, was outraged and complained to the school, an uncharacteristic act of assertion on her part. 
Not gregarious by nature, my mother rarely confronted anyone and dreaded social and community activities. A year or so later, she was gratified when Mrs. Quick appeared at our door selling cheap encyclopedias. <laughs> God. You know, I really have a problem with that. Here's an aside. Um, I used to do... Um, and when I was going through art school, I was a student aide or a teacher's aide. And one of my classrooms that I had a job in was kindergarten. And it was in a, in a fairly well-off neighborhood. Um, and so I would go to, these, go to the job and go back and forth to class and stuff in between. And, um, one of the things that really, really is, was hard for me and upsetting for me is... I mean, I'd already raised my two kids, so... <laughs> I was fully, um, I leaned fully along the line of you learn through play and you learn through um, experimenting and exploring. So to have to go into the public school system and watch after my kids were born, I mean after my kids were almost raised, I think my other son was probably still in school when I was doing this, my youngest. But to see them, I mean, I had to help when they were doing these projects, like this turkey. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I, if those kids were not cutting on the line that was already pre-drawn for them by the teacher, or color it in just a certain way, it was so hard for me because that's what she wanted me to help them do is do it right, right? And I'm an art student and I'm an artist and I'm a mom who allowed my kids to color the way they wanted. And <laughs> But what they were doing in kindergarten is teaching them how to be socialized and teaching them how to go along with institutions and their rules how to cut and how to follow instructions and eye-hand coordination and all this stuff, right? <sighs> so frustrating. I got in trouble once. Not really in trouble, but I, I sort of went against the rule and I said, you know, I think you should color it the way you want. <laughs> um, I did instruct them about cutting because, you know, you do have to know how to cut, but it's just like... I wasn't going to make them do anything over if they made a little goof up and didn't stay right on the line or stay in the lines when they were coloring. My goodness. But this teacher was a control freak. So I can understand this mother. This mother having an upsetting thing with not allowing free hand drawing in kindergarten. Yeah, I get that. And I don't, I'm not as old as these folks are, but, you know, I totally get it. So, okay, back to the story. Selling cheap encyclopedias. That winter, my father completed The Tormentors, an almost fully abstract painting, a dark, somber work, a night painting. The Tormentors is deeply depressive in tone. In it, a, a web of spidery, whitish outlines, some of them recognizably nailed shoe soles, hovers over a black ground. 
Clearly it represents an ending, a sinking of forms into despairing oblivion. Excuse me. In the fall of 1948, my mother and I moved into the town of Woodstock. My father had won the Prix de Rome and was off to Italy for a year to see firsthand and for the first time the frescoes he had loved since boyhood. His painting had become his painting had come to an impasse. In Italy, he hoped to renew himself at the source. Boy, do I relate to that, too, in my travels and leaving the library work and traveling to Europe. Um, before then, my father had often been away for year, for days, even weeks at a time, but for the first time in my life, I remember feeling he had left us completely. My mother brought me to New York to see him off on the boat. She remembers looking up at him from the pier, seeing him standing with the other artists at the, at the rail and sensing that he wouldn't be coming back to her. Characteristically, she had held herself at least partly responsible for his deepening depression. I wasn't good for him, she says, when we talk about it. Why, I asked, incredulous, but she only shakes her head. When we got back to Woodstock, my mother collapsed, staying in bed for days. I don't know who took care of you, she tells me, but a painter friend, Bradley, Walken, Bradley Walker Tomlin, came to talk with her. She remembers that house on Orchard Lane was small and cluttered, yet it seemed very empty to me. I associate that time with being sick, with ether nightmares, tonsillectomy. At school, for the first time, I felt remote from other children. The bright spot of that year was at Christmas when my father sent me a band of toy soldiers, carabinieri, Italian police, each playing a different musical instrument, as well as a small wooden Pinocchio and marzipan fruit. The following summer, when I was six, my mother left me in Woodstock so that she could spend four months in Italy with my father. It only recently it is only recently that my mother and I have begun to talk about this time. I shouldn't have left you, my mother tells me now, but when Philip wrote and asked me to come, I didn't think of you. I thought only of being with him, that he wanted me with him. Couldn't you have taken me with you, I ask? My mother looks at me aghast. Taken you? Oh, I wouldn't have known how. Philip did not, didn't want you there. But that's terrible, I say. There's a silence. My feelings are hurt with the blunt evidence of my mother's loyalty. Uh, my feelings are hurt by the blunt evidence of my mother's loyalties. Still, it is I who have stirred up these waters. I remind myself, encouraged this new frankness between this between us. I try to keep my voice level. I mean, it was terrible of him to make you choose like that. Now it is my mother who seems irritated, defensive as if I have attacked what is unassailable. Terrible? Why? He was an artist. That was simply who he was. And I have no answer to that except for my own anger. The first part of that long summer I spent up on the mountain in Birdcliff at a place called the French Camp, a sort of boarding school where no English was permitted. My memories of this place are of long corridors and blowing curtains of bare white rooms and being given pennies to spend for candy on infrequent trips into town. 
Later in the summer, I was taken to St. George's, a church camp on the Hudson River, where I remember stepping on hornet's nest and being terrorized by swimming. The river looked so huge and broad to me. I was sure I'd be swept away by the current. It was a strange fear, really. When I was older, I remember being proud of my mother for her effortless racing dives and smooth Australian crawl. Her sister was an expert swimmer. Actually, my Aunt Josephine had been quite an athlete as a girl, an all-around national outdoor champion who had competed on the U.S. swimming team in the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics and again in Los Angeles in 1932, bringing home a gold medal. With that sort of heritage, you'd think I'd have learned to love the water, but during that summer my parents were away in Italy, I became afraid of it. To this day, I feel a certain dread of the water, a fear of drowning. Like all irrational fears, this one certainly bears more than its own weight. I changed in other ways, too. You were always so lively before, my mother says. Curious about everything and friendly, but when we came back, you were subdued somehow. I ask her what she means. Oh, I don't know, my mother says. Serious? Quiet, I guess? Shy? When you when they came home that fall, my parents brought me a, a beautiful Swiss china doll. I christened her Basilia after her birthplace. She had real human hair, fine ivory teeth just visible through her slightly parted lips, blue glass eyes that were fixed, and a delicate porcelain body that was soon cracked and broken. My mother took her to the doll hospital to be repaired, but I never really played with her after that. She reminded me of a time I wanted to forget. Basalia still lies unstrung in an old wooden box. Her porcelain limbs are wrapped in tissue paper. Her green velvet dress with the embroidery of wildflowers has faded. Shortly after I was born, my mother stopped painting. Not all at once. For a time, she painted small things, botanical illustrations of wildflowers, paintings of nests, of children and birds. In my parents' house, there were many paintings hanging, but only one of them is my mother's. Hidden behind the kitchen door, a garland of cupids in grassier cavorts around the wooden frame of a mirror. A scrapbook she made for me with pictures snipped from old life magazines contains pages of great horned owls, of propellers and apples, armadillos and lighthouses. On one page, Gulliver is besieged by Lilliputians. Another Belgian countess lies in her white satin bed with a dozen or so of her 35 dogs. And there is picture after picture of mother animals and their babies, dogs, burrows, flamingos, cats. One story entitled, A Good Provider, shows mother, a mother, mouse, dipping her tail in a bottle of salad oil, climbing down a rope to her nest, all the while carefully crooking her tail so it would not drip, then stretching it out for her children so they can lick off the oil. My father's valentines and notes to me were each carefully pasted in this scrapbook. It was my favorite book. My father encouraged her whimsical forays, brought out my mother's marvelous little drawings, a tiny nest, a speckled shell, 
to show to friends. It's a dangerous business to be married to a great painter, Rosemary Beck. I know her as Becky from the years that she and her husband, Robert Phelps, were friends with my parents. Encouragement of what is merely charming can stunt an artist's development, she believes. Too much praise for that which would not grow is the way she puts it. Too much praise for that which would not grow is the way she puts it. From somewhere, a bookcase, Becky retrieves one of my mother's paintings she's kept all these years of a small, surreal bird with a shell in its beak. She hands it to me. It is charming. Yes, Becky says, but it's a terrible thing to be praised for something that it's that is not the best you can do. I nod, still quite not quite understanding. Oh, it's not a deliberate condescension, she hastens to reassure me, reassure me, seeing my puzzled look, but it is inevitable. As I'm sitting with Becky, something my mother said not long before comes back to me, another piece of the same puzzle. One day, up in Woodstock, I'd been pushing her, pressing her to explain, but why Woodstock? Oh, excuse me. But why exactly did she stop painting? I asked her, point blank. Hadn't my father encouraged her? Yes, of course he did, my mother said curtly, as if she were a little irritated at my denseness. He was always very sweet about it, but how could anyone see Philip's work and want to go on painting? I nodded. Yes, I thought, I know, of course. The deadening effect of that comparison seemed very familiar to me. Nothing she did as a painter would ever have seemed good enough. Was it then, around the time that I was born, I find myself wondering that my mother began collecting things, fossils and leaves and shells, and my childish sayings, my swing songs and jump rope rhymes? When I looked at her collections, it seems clear now that there were some wistful compromise concealed within them, some sort of scaling down of larger ambitions, some settling between the needs of her husband and her child, for smaller aesthetic pleasures, more commensurate with what she mistakenly thought were her own limited capabilities. And she began writing poetry. And this looks like a poem, one of her poems. On Women. Settle too far down with a beach image of women, work too hard for her, and you both end up bitter and decrepit. This need not happen. Women are learners. They learn from their children. They learn from their husbands, particularly from their husbands. They learn from friends and from books. From books they learn about their children, husbands and friends, and about themselves. They learn that they would be willing to sacrifice a little comfort for a little beauty. Many know this by instinct. Molly, come here. Many know this by instinct. Some have to learn it each day all over again. The latter are the more conscious of their blessings, if not the more attractive. It is not surprising that the most comfortable shoe in the world is worn by the most uncomfortable woman. It does not look like a shoe. As for the woman tapped on the behind, 
by the rolled newspaper of a man going to Mass on the steps of St. Veronica's on Christopher Street. Nothing has come in on that yet. And that's the end of chapter two. Next will be chapter three, and it's called Stern Conditions. Thanks for reading, listening. I don't know if anybody's listening, but it does me good to read out loud some of these books that I want to read in full length so I can have them out in audio format. For my own listening and for any of those that are following along, I'm not a podcaster and I'm not an audiobook reader. I'm just an artist doing my thing. Good night. Thank you.